You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Bottlenose dolphin, this could be a two-parter, I know that, so... What can they teach us? Bottlenose dolphins will help the fishermen catch fish. They'll, like, I don't know if they, like, push the fish towards their fish nets, and then they'll actually, like, signal. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. All right. Bottlenose dolphin. This could be a two-parter. I know that. So I think we're going to go light on some details because their behavior... I mean, not only is this an iconic, very iconic marine mammal, but their behavior is insane. They're just incredible animals. Oh, it's been such a fun week learning about them, doing deep dives into the literature, uh, their vocalizations, their group hunting strategies, their cognition. It's just, yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun on this podcast talking all about bottlenose dolphins and they're they're everybody's favorites, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. they they're just so fantastic and I'll tell you what, preparing this pod this week, I'm like, man, maybe I took a misturn in my life like I should have done dolphin research. These I know. guys are so fascinating. And I feel like I just touched the tip of the iceberg of learning about them and really, really getting to know more about bottlenose dolphins. And I'm not done. I know the podcast will end tonight when we're finished, but my research for fun, because yes, I'm that big of animal dork, will continue. And I'll uh, there's some books that I think I want to pick up and just learn more about them. Well, I mean, behavior is a passion of yours. You know, you did research in, you know, land mammal behavior. So jumping into the ocean and looking at their behaviors. I remember when we dorked out on the orca episode. So dolphins, strap yourselves in, get ready. Just fascinating. It'll be a good ride for sure. And also to top off this week is we will be releasing an amazing interview from another Whitley Award winner from 2021, Pedro Fouet, who is working in Brazil to conserve La Heel bottlenose dolphin. And I had the pleasure of interviewing Pedro, and it was just fascinating to hear his story and learn all about the La Heel bottlenose dolphins and how he is helping conserve this very vulnerable population. I think there's like maybe 600 individuals that they've at least identified in in this niche in southeastern Brazil. So the interview is just fascinating, and you'll want to look for that later on this week because he is definitely deserving of the Whitley Award, and he plans to use the money that he's getting to to save these guys. And now that I'm learning more and more about them, of course, he tells some fascinating stories about their behavior because he's studied them for 20 years uh, in the interview. But the more I'm learning about bottlenose dolphins and especially these lahils, it's just it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, I have goosebumps. It's just they're it's just amazing. I know. And last week we talked about you know going back to school. <laughs> it just like I said, I ocean. know. I yeah. think John would have a little bit of a heart attack if I told him now that I wanted to be a marine biologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. But yeah, look for that interview this week again. Another grassroots conservationist. It, it's these stories. 
of these winners. I mean, you know, everybody we interview, but especially these ones, these are just. Oh yeah. He's out there on the boat, taking notes, uh, capturing their behaviors, uh, trying to keep the oceans clean, trying to help, uh, work with local fishermen, uh, to help reduce bycatch and other struggles that we'll talk about, uh, throughout the podcast that bottlenose dolphins are facing in the oceans. Yes. And then just really quick, Thank you to Laura and Zachary joined us on Patreon this week. And Zachary, we'll get back to you soon on Facebook. Thanks for messaging us. It it just means the world to us. Again, you know, at minimum, a cup of coffee a month. It just means the world to Angie and I and helps us give back to organizations and then also just keep doing what we're doing. You know, the many hours that we put into this each week to spread this conservation message. So you can check us out on Patreon. The link's always in the show notes. But thank you so much. Yeah, and don't forget too that if you do sign up with us uh, for Patreon, we donate 25% of any proceeds to the organization that our Patreon select. So we're giving money back to some of these amazing groups that we interview and talk about on the podcast, which is really helpful to them. So that that's definitely a way that you can feel good about uh, giving to us to give back more to the animals. Uh, and also this week, if you are looking for a free and fun, definitely thing to do, uh, All Creatures Podcast is hosting a team for the Plastic Free Eco Challenge. We do this each July, and I know it says plastic-free in the name, but it's really, of course, it's almost impossible to go plastic-free. And what we do in the challenge is you just set little micro goals uh, that you can complete either every day or once a month. And the more you do and participate and learn about how to help reduce plastic, uh, the more points our team earns. And we're doing pretty good so far out of like the 362 teams. We're uh, right now that uh, our team members, kudos to all of them out there. Thank you so much for participating. We're uh, we're like ranked 33rd. So uh. yeah, of course we're not beating John Santa Fe College teaching <laughs> yeah. zoo. <laughs> but, and not that it's all about winning. No, it's just no. It's all no, about no. winning right now. Yeah. Uh, but if you have interest, you can go to plasticfree.ecochallenge.org. Uh, Chris will put it on the show notes. Mm-hmm. It's not too late to join. And even just... Uh, learning about it, joining, uh, scores us some extra points. And when you do sign up, you just have to give them your email and, um, and then you want to search for all creatures podcast. Yeah. And they don't spam you or anything like that. And you do no, learn a lot. No, you no, do, no. They're very you do learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thank you for doing that. And yeah, this month we're sending money actually for the last couple of months. So we're sending money to project coyote and the American cetacean society. So we are supporting them through our listeners. So thank you so much. Which is perfect because we're talking about cetaceans I know, today. I know, cetaceans. Uh, it's, so describing them, one thing that surprised me, I didn't realize how big they can get. Yeah. I, just, yeah, I never think of bottlenose dolphins as being that large. I mean, they're big. They're big Well, mammals, I think it's because you've been lucky enough to see them from a boat, which I have. They're mm-hmm. far enough away, right, where they, they you can't really tell their size. Well, I, I the funny thing is I was telling the boys this morning on the way to school, I told him a story when I was surfing one day in California, paddling out and dolphins came in and were riding the waves. And I remember seeing, you know, mom, I, I, I thought it was a mom and a dad who knows it could have been like mom and grandma and a little baby in middle of the wave. And I remember Aww. watching that approach me and I was just like in total awe and I forgot to dive under the wave, you know, duck dive last second. <laughs> I was watching these dolphins surf 
I got slammed. I'm being oh. tumbled. And I'm just underwater, not even caring, just like, that's the coolest thing I have ever seen, you know? <laughs> I so, love it. I yeah, love it. But, but I don't know if they were bottlenosed dolphins. I, I assume they were. Sure, I don't know. Sure. But, yeah, well, yeah. you had to take a wave to see some dolphins. I would oh, say it's it amazing. a pretty yeah. fair trade. Yeah, it was amazing. I, the boys were laughing about it, but yeah. Oh, that's so great. But I mean, I think they're pretty un- iconic as far as describing them goes. I mean, everybody knows in general what a dolphin looks like. And so the color of the bottlenose dolphin is going to vary a lot depending on where they live, but it's usually anywhere from a dark gray, dark brown in color over the top dorsal half of them. And then on the underside, it's going to be maybe a little bit lighter gray, uh, bluish gray perhaps, maybe even almost a pink tint on the underside. And that's that counter shading that we've talked about before where they're darker on top and lighter on the bottom to help uh, protect them from predators, right? When predators look up, they can't see them as much. So uh, sometimes when dolphins age, once again, depending on where they live, they might even have um, some molding or some spots uh, that will occur throughout their body. And I mean, again, what got me was at their largest, they can get up to 12 and a half feet long or four meters Mm-hmm. which is pretty long for a dolphin. And then they can weigh up to 1,400 pounds or 640 kilograms. Now, most aren't that large, but to me, that's just, it's, it's just huge. You know, it's just huge. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I was definitely the weight of being 1,400 pounds. I'm like, that's a large horse. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is. As far as know? weight's concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they're big. They're big. Bottlenose dolphins live... Again, te- these temperate tropical waters, pretty much all around the world. Yeah, everywhere yeah. besides the Arctic and Antarctic circles. Right, right. And they like water that's between 50 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 to 32 degrees Celsius. So, you know, all the way up there, I'm looking at the map, Norway, mm-hmm. off the coast there, off the coast of Canada, uh, not up in the Bering Strait or near Alaska. That's too cold for them, but definitely around here, New Zealand, Australia, Southeast Asia, Africa, I mean, throughout the world, that's where you find bottlenose dolphins. And then just transitioning to Wycarangi, I mean, oceanic predator. We, we we talked recently a lot about oceans and seaspiracy. We're going to talk a lot about oceans this month in Plastic Free July. But being that they're everywhere in the world and, and they're widely distributed, I mean, they, they have a major impact on our ecosystem. Oh, yeah, Chris. I mean, it's been said before that uh, bottlenose dolphin populations can be indicators of the marine ecosystem and its health. So it just goes to show that they have that that predator role and they, they eat a lot of small fish and squid. So they're really important to, to mitigate those populations as far as if there's not enough dolphins in water, those populations are going to explode and that's going to be problematic. So they help keep that healthy uh, checks and balances or the food web streamlined. Um, and why care? Why else care about them? If uh, They're just so cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, in general, it's rare to meet a human that's like, oh, dolphins are not, or, you know, I don't like dolphins. Like, you know, I don't know if I've ever met anybody that's been like, yeah, dolphins are just boring or I would never want to see a dolphin. I mean, they're really fascinating creatures. Obviously 
here in the United States, there was a show long before my time called Flipper, where kids fell in love with uh, a dolphin that interacted with humans. And it's just, I mean, culturally speaking, regardless of where you grow up, there's either stories about them or shows and books. It's just, people are just fascinated by them. And then later on the podcast, we'll talk about stories where dolphins have are helping humans in mm-hmm. several different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, some really altruistic behaviors from them, which means they will help and do things without actually getting anything in return. So I think that it's it's fair to say that either whether it's from an ecotourism point of view or just people out on the water, people love seeing dolphins and knowing that they're in the water. And I think it would be a really, really sad, sad world if there were not dolphins in them from a human perspective. But then I think it'd be devastating from an ecological point of view as well. Oh, it's not hard to convince people to care about bottles nose dolphins. It just... They are so iconic. I mean, I go back to my childhood. They're just they're they're in our psyche. They're they're yeah. That's a oh my gosh. That yeah. you just summed it up just like that. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect description, Chris. Yeah, yeah. They're they're amazing. They're amazing. Now to kick off this month quickly, I'm just going to throw numbers at you. Talking about plastics in the ocean, we talked about this in Seaspiracy a little bit. There was a lot to dissect in that film. I guess Angie, one of the things the more I I dissect that film, the more problems I have with it. But I I did want to talk about why plastics in the ocean are still a major issue. Even though in that film, they, they kind of attribute a lot of the plastic to fishing nets and fishing gear. I really think that film's more of a hit piece on the fishing industry. So being neutral scientists, what are the facts? And that's kind of what, what I did in the rabbit hole I went down. Now, what we know, some of the data from multiple organizations, you know, and the UN is always a good one to go, but looking at some of these other governmental studies, about 12 million tons of plastic are washed into the oceans each year. So we know a lot of our garbage and maybe in, a, in another pod in a few weeks, I'll talk about some of the sources. I mean, Southeast Asia, what rivers, a lot of rivers are, are driving a lot of this, this pollution into the ocean. Now, in the UK, up at Pip's Neck of the Woods, a governmental study estimated about 100,000 marine mammals and turtles and about a million seabirds are killed by marine plastic pollution annually. Okay. Now, we think, oh, trash on the beach. That's, that is an issue. You know, I've done beach cleanups. Angie's done beach cleanups. We've gone. I've seen it. Southern California tons of garbage being washed up and then tons of garbage being left on the beach. So that is a source of marine litter, but there are more major sources, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Like I said, a lot of plastics are washed through rivers. You can think of it like this way in major cities, urban areas, a lot of garbage getting washed into sewer systems. Yeah, well, in Florida, ocean. it's yeah. our rainy season right now. Um, in fact, a tropical storm, low-grade hurricane is going to be here in probably about mm-hmm. 12 hours. Mm-hmm. So we better get this podcast right, done. I know, I know. Uh, but it's our rainy season. Uh, the ground is saturated. There's a lot of standing water. There's a lot of water going into our sewer systems. And so that's just what I always talk to the boys about. It's one thing to be to tell them, oh, you know, make sure and pick up our litter or pick up other people's. 
But I find, especially with kids, it's always good to say, well, why? Why do we care about our environment? Why don't we want this this plastic to go into the gutter and uh, near our neighborhood where we live? And I always explain to them that it makes it makes its way out to the oceans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only a matter of time. And so explaining that I think helps them see the bigger picture, but it's, it's true. I mean, it's, it's, we're all, it's all interconnected. Even if you live, you don't have to live on the ocean for it to end up in the oceans. There's a lot of cities have rivers that go through them and streams that go from those rivers that end up in the ocean. Right. So. Oh yeah. So it's, it's, you know, yeah, that's a great point. Even if you live in middle of the United States, Florida, or Canada, like or, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. or you know, in South America, wherever you are, you know, these plastics are finding their way out into the ocean. Now, in the Seaspiracy documentary, they claim nearly fifty percent, or specifically forty-six percent, of plastics in the ocean are fishing gear. And I, again, this is why facts are important. It does a disservice because I think it makes people feel like, oh, well, our single-use plastics aren't that much of a problem because most of it's fishing gear and I don't fish. So I'll just won't eat more, I'll just eat less fish and I won't have that much of an impact. It's not true. And and that's why I have a problem with the film. When you do that, you you change the narrative with with false data. Now there was one study that went and looked at the Pacific Gyre. That's that huge one that we've talked about multiple times. Mm -hmm. That's about the size of the country of Mexico of just garbage in the ocean. Well, when you dig into that study, it's, it's what's on the surface. And they looked at this one part of the gyre and said, Oh, in this part of the gyre, 50% of the plastic we collected was fishing gear. Okay. That's one study Mm -hmm. in one little particular spot, but they didn't go under the surface where there is just, millions of tons of garbage and plastic. Then we'll talk about microplastics here in a minute. So all of these people that work in this industry, that they're environmentalists, conservationists, materials engineers, they're like, no, you can't make that claim because it makes people feel like, well, single-use plastics aren't a problem. In total only about 10% of all plastic pollution in the ocean comes from fishing gear. Okay, not 50%, only 10%. It's a huge problem. Fishing gear is horrific to dolphins, whales, turtles. sea turtles. Mm-hmm. It's it's tragic. But, you know, I just don't want people to think that that's where a lot of this garbage is coming from. Well, and the other thing too with single-use plastics, because I am participating in Plastic Free July and uh, I really try to hone in and buying things that have minimal plastic or no plastic. Give me those carrots that don't that are just I can just grab them by the handful. I don't need the plastic bag. I wash them when I bring them home. Or farmers markets are great for these kinds of things. Uh, but with the single use straws or, or utensils, I, I carry my own. So I don't need to do that. But I also think that it sends a message, right? If we're voting with our dollar, like we don't, we want you to think outside the box. And here in Florida, since we've started this podcast, and I, I don't think it's because of us, but it's because of everybody in our community, people that are listening, people that are sharing this information. The few times and places where I have forgotten my metal straw or forgot to tell the waiter that I don't need a straw, things like this, I'll get the straw and it's paper. 
and they 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 kind of suck. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> so I should say they don't suck, right? So there's straws <laughs> that don't work very well, uh, but. They work good enough, and they actually I'm, I I eat and drink really fast, yeah. uh, and so they actually slow me down a little bit because the straw doesn't work that great or doesn't yeah. work as well as a metal one does. I'm mm-hmm. not going to even say the plastic word, but retailers are providing the public with what they want, and that is not a single plastic. use plastic. Yeah. And so, even if there's not that large a percent of single use plastics. Rather, maybe doesn't compete with fish nuts or whatever. It's still ending up in the ocean. Mm-hmm. I mean, bottle caps, and I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. Uh, it's all going. It's ending up there. And unfortunately, it's a different pod for, for a different day. And I'd love to get a specialist on here. So if anybody listening knows of somebody that's uh, really is really well versed in plastic recycling research, uh, please let me know. I'd love to talk to them because what I'm reading here in the United States is. Even though we recycle things, uh, our plastics and um, aluminum cans and glass, especially when it's con- plastic is considered, only about maybe 33% of it is actually recycled because there's yeah. just not a demand. So right. this year for my Plastic Free July, I'm also pushing let's get vendors and uh, big companies to use recycled plastic. Unfortunately, at this point in time, it's cheaper for a water bottle manufacturing company or a soda bottle company to buy a new bottle to put the the water or the soda in than to actually melt down and reuse the one that you spent your time recycling. So ideally it's better to not buy it, but that's unrealistic. Some people are still going to buy it. And Mm -hmm. so we need to make more of a demand for, reusing it. And there's just, unfortunately here in the States, and I'm not sure how it is in New Zealand or our friends down in Australia or PIP in the UK. I'm not sure what the demand is there, but here in the United States at this point, the uh, reusable plastic market is really low, almost non-existent. And so I always, if I do have to buy a plastic product, uh, I often at least search for, is it recycled plastic? So if you if you have to buy plastic, look for recycled plastic. But the problem is there's not a lot of it because it costs more money to, to do that. And that therein lies the problem. When it's not about the money, it's about the money. But if us as consumers start demanding those products the way we've been demanding, we don't want plastic straws. We want paper straws or some a, a different alternative. They, the big businesses will listen. Uh, they, ha- they have no choice. So well- – Okay, so while you're talking, I ran out of the room real quick, and I went and grabbed <laughs> my my plastic Glad plastic baggies that I sometimes need to store food in the fridge and stuff. And this is fifty percent plant plant based sandwich bags here in nice. New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So obviously, so it even says it's keep keeps food fresher for longer. These greener snap locks, resealable bags protect and preserve food. And, you know, talks about recycling. Uh, Just this morning, Angie, after I dropped the boys off, I had to stop at the store. I needed detergent for the dishwasher. And without even thinking it, this is the impact that my decisions have made. I saw the little pods that were in plastic bags and then in boxes. And I said, nope, I'm going to grab the boxes. You know, it's I was like, uh-uh, mm-hmm. I'm not using the, the plastic packaging. When I bought my laundry detergent, I do not buy the big plastic bottles. I buy it in the box and I recycle my, my, my paper. So 
yeah, it has an impact. It's having an impact here in New Zealand. They're banning single use plastics. They just announced it last month. Like awesome. So many more things. Yeah, I was really happy here in the States going to Target and buying deodorant, uh, which is very necessary when you live in Florida (laughs) and you're a busy mom like myself. And they had a really good selection of deodorant that comes in a paper, uh, thick cardboard tube uh, instead of a plastic container. And it wasn't just one brand. It was several different brands and even some well-known brands Mm -hmm. as well. And so... That's showing me that there is a de- people are starting to think about the products they buy. Right. And if they cost the same, why why not just get the paper one? Right. Uh, so things like that. But we have to do this together as a com- as a community, and that's why I think this plastic free July uh, movement that All Creatures Podcast has been doing the past couple summers is really great. It's really helped educate yeah. me, but. The whole plastic thing, yeah, we really should try to get an expert on here that that studies it for right. a living because I'm I'm just so fascinated by it and and want to learn how to help more because we we can I mean there has there are communities that are banning plastic bags there's communities that have banned plastic water bottles mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. it was a mm-hmm. challenge um, but so together I think we can do some of these things to help marine wildlife we just have oh, yeah. to like I educate think ourselves dolphins and swimming out in the ocean getting trapped in fishing gear which is horrific getting eating we've seen it sea turtles eating plastic bags because they look like jellyfish jellyfish. whales washing up dead on the beaches with with hundreds of pounds of plastic in their stomachs It, it is a huge issue yes chris and for me it's something i'm really passionate about so we'll have to keep discussing this on the podcast because that's what we do. We yeah, yeah, we learn, yeah. we evolve, we change, we help educate, uh, we share these things. Because a lot of people I talk to, they don't even know some of these products are out there mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that can be... Uh, I've, I've been using toothpaste tablets. They're wonderful. Uh, I just saw an ad. I, I don't know the company's name. I'll have to Google it. But you can buy little tablets and you put... And then you fill a container full of water and you toss the tablet in and it becomes hand soap. Oh, wow. Dishwasher uh, liquid, laundry soap, whatever. I mean, right. it makes sense, right? right. Like you, the little right. concentrated pill, you and I, we understand enough about chemistry to know that that's possible, right? Yeah. So just genius ideas, thinking outside the box. Remember, and plastics originate from fossil fuels, which is a whole nother discussion I'm going to save for another podcast because I, I want to be correct in what I'm accusing energy companies of doing, things like that. Um, just to tidy up some of this data, so 10% of the plastics in the ocean are fishing gear. The other sources, about 20 to 25% comes from rivers, and then about 55, 60% comes from coastal areas. And we know human population is pretty high on the coast. I know in the United States, a lot of people move to the coast. They want to live near the ocean. Now, globally, there's about 350 million tons of plastic produced. So this is a... a this is a, a rabbit hole I'm going to go down later as far as how much of an environmental impact plastics have, not just on the oceans, but to climate change. I mean, it just producing one ton of plastic generates two and a half tons of carbon dioxide. And that's from Material Economics a study in 2018. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole another day. Really quick. As these plastics degrade, I mean, it can take up to 400 years for some of these things to, to break down. They become microplastics, okay? So they, they become tiny. This is where fish eat them. 
smaller organisms eat them. So, you know, starting with, with bottlenose dolphins, they fish that have been eating a lot of this microplastics. They ingest that in their system, right? And I know I brought this up a few weeks ago, but there was the a 2020 study that came out of Italy that they found plastic particles in human placenta. Oh, and, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we are what we eat. So Yeah. That microplastics, 10 microns or smaller, they're finding that, that can be carried in the human bloodstream are now being found in human placenta. So that means it's in our blood. We're inhaling it. We're eating it. We're absorbing it in our body. And we are carrying plastics in us. So that should horrify anybody. What does that lead with cancers, health issues? It, it's it's really, really scary. And then again, like Angie and I said, it, it, how, what's being done? We're going to tell more of this story over the coming month. It's a personal choice, like like us and you listening. And then governments banning single-use plastics around the world. And then also consumers. You know, you're, you're, you're key to that. Yeah, I think the biggest take home is we're not we're not alone in this. We have each other. I know in my local community there's a lot of grassroots movements to try uh to try to to come together and figure out sustainable solutions. So if you have any questions, you can always send us an email or reach out and hopefully Chris and I, like I said, we'll be able to talk more about this topic that we're both so passionate about, as you can uh, uh, tell. We're probably almost as passionate about this as we are about those dolphins in general. Yes. Well, and I think it's something that we can do, you know, and we can make an impact, all of us. Yeah. Well, that's why I love this Plastic Free Challenge because it shows our impacts and our team alone will, uh, throughout the next couple of weeks, we'll post some of our stats, but you know- we're reducing hundreds of plastics uh, utensils from going into the landfill and picking up tons of waste and that's not ending up in the oceans. And it's great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. I'm going to give you the cliff notes version on evolution. We've, we've just like covered this with pilot whales a few weeks back. Very similar with the bottlenose dolphin. I mean, you know, there's about 6,500 mammal species, about 130 of those are aquatic mammals. The bottlenose dolphin is Artiodactyla, which again is our even-toed ungulate. So they have all their friends on land that are close relatives oh, yes. or older relatives. Yes. Yeah. So there's about 400 species of aquatic and land-based Artiodactyla in that order. Now the infra order is Cetacea. So this is the the whales and dolphins. You have about 86 species. We, I think we covered this with one of our whale species, but you have autotonsidae, the tooth whales. So this is where our dolphins fall into, the sperm whales, beaked whales, porpoises, that, all of those. Then the mysticeti, which is our baleen whales, which I still the blue whale. That one still blows me away. I got to see a blue whale. I have to go see a blue whale. <laughs> I'm going to go off New Zealand and, and find one, one of these days. All right, bottlenose dolphins, Delphinidae. Again, I think in the pilot whale, I saw 35 species. There's about 42 species, subspecies of dolphin, and then seven species of porpoises. The species of dolphin do include those killer whales, pilot whales, and all those others, right? So they're they're in that dolphin family. 
Now, the bottlenose dolphin genus is Terciops. So they, there's currently two species in that genus. You have the common bottlenose dolphin and the mm-hmm. Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphin. Then two subspecies. So the Black Sea bottlenose dolphin and then the Lahils bottlenose dolphin. So the the scientific name is Terciops truncatus for a bottlenose dolphin. And then you have the, uh, that's the common. And then the Indo-Pacific is Truciops aduncus. So there you go. Whales, I mean, the hippo is the closest relative, started going into the water about 56 million years ago, an early mammal, evolved from there. We know the tooth whales and baleen whales diverged about 34 million years ago. And I was interesting reading, because you know me, I love evolution. Every time I go back and I try to find specifics on that species, the, the one innovation they said that really helped the tooth whales was the acquisition of echolocation and how critical that was in them going from a baleen type, whatever that early ancestor was to specifically tooth whale to where sure. they can hunt. Yeah. Hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Delphinidae emerged about 11 million years ago and then the bottlenose dolphin, an ancient ancestor about 5 million years ago. So... That was evolution in a nutshell. I think in pilot whales, any of our other whale episodes, I might have gone down a deeper dive. I know, but I think because they, but every time we cover a cetacean, I'm just always so blown away that they're closely related to like hippos. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it's, and it's, and that's why, and I mean, I made the joke earlier in the podcast. It's not really a joke, but it's kind of a joke that, oh, I should have studied marine biology. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I, when I am, reading about uh, dolphins in particular and, and other species of whales and reading their behavior and some of their physiology. I just, it's just so awesome that that's the line that they came from. And then they've evolved into these just highly intelligent, just beautiful mammals just swimming in the ocean. It's just crazy. Oh, it's just, it is, it is. I love They're it. Just, I just, you know, I was watching the, again, One Planet the other day on Netflix and just watching those dolphins swim in those huge pods. It just jaw dropping. They're just, mm-hmm. they're so beautiful. Now, bottlenose dolphins, pretty good lifespan, up to 50 years in the wild or 60 years under human care. And it's interesting how they age them because, I remember the baleen whales, at least, maybe sperm whales, they aged by the earwax. Mm-hmm. But with dolphins, they age it by their teeth. And not like you think with horses, but they only have one set of teeth and they grow a little bit each year. So they have like growth rings. You might have said this in orcas. I don't remember. But they can count those annual layers and that's how they determine how old they are. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it is cool. Looking at general physiology, Angie, because I know we got to get to behavior. Thick layer of blubber, like most aquatic mammals, up to 20% of their body weight is blubber. Helps mm-hmm. them keep keep warm. They're very good at thermoregulating with keeping their, their body temperatures are about what ours are. Mm-hmm. And they thermo, thermoregulate through their fins. And, and I remember going back, like especially with Repro, their testes are internal. So oh, I studied yes. this a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how they... Because the the testes to produce spermatozoa have to be kept lower than body temperature. And I'm like, how does it work? Like elephants are internal testes. How does it work in dolphins? And it is through those. They have a special blood vessel set up 
that their pectoral fins and I think even the dorsal fin runs to the testes to keep the, the blood cooler. It's, it's such a fascinating To do the system. countercurrent heat exchange, yeah. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just some other facts about swimming for them. You know, when they're out in the ocean, they routinely go anywhere from three to seven miles per hour, or five to 12 kilometers per hour. But the maximum speed observed was around 18 miles per hour or 30 kilometers per hour. So they can go fast if they need to, but generally don't, obviously, to conserve energy. And they can jump, Chris. That's what I was reading. Yeah. Uh, up to a height of six meters or 20 feet in the air. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. They, yeah. The, 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 like spinner dolphins. Like, why do they spin? I, I want to find that one out one of these days. And then Angie talking about swimming and, and this would maybe jump into some behaviors too. Porpoising. The reason they porpoise is because when they jump out of water, it is more efficient for them. So they go faster because again, it makes sense. Air has less drag, so they can jump, and they they do this porpoising, and it burns less energy. So it's really efficient for them to to swim that way. Wow, that's. I mean, it makes sense scientifically when you explain it like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of uh, me doing the butterfly, yes. which is not a sight that really anybody should watch. Uh, I was more of a distance uh, freestyle swimmer in high school, but whenever I tried the butterfly where I, you know, you're coming out of the water with your arms and you're doing the, the dolphin mm-hmm. kick with your legs. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I was pretty slow <laughs> when I was, cause it's kind of like a porpoising type move. Yeah. Uh, and wow. But, it, but it makes sense that they're, they're just so strong and they're coming in out of the water. And I know there's plenty of people out there that are really good at swimming the butterfly stroke. Just not this, not just not this lady. <laughs> well, it's plus you're a gangly human with, with, you know, two long legs and arms and a exactly. big, and a head and dolphins bodies are, are built very streamline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To fly mm-hmm. through the water like that. So just, you know, things like echolocation, sight, all of those things we've covered before in whale episodes, these guys have. They don't dive, dive very deep to get their food, you know, up to 150 feet down, 20 to 40 seconds. They don't go down very long, but they can go down up to 1,200 or 1,300 feet, wow. almost 400 meters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then in one study they had, one went down to almost 1,600 feet or 500 meters. Hmm. They can die for up to 10 minutes, but they think around 12 minutes is their, their, their max of diving. Yeah, I was reading that they usually take breaths every one to two minutes when they're just swimming about. But on average, the, uh, the bottlenose, the Atlantic bottlenose dolphin would, holds the, its breath for like five minutes. Yeah. Yeah, so so then again, like That's other, still other long. yeah, longer yeah. than me. Jeez, no, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd be dead. <laughs> now, <laughs> w- while they're diving, you know, they're hunting, they're looking mm-hmm. for fish, squid, uh, you know, shrimp, all of those things that you would think a dolphin would eat, uh, and they need about twenty-two pounds of fish a day, you know, or food. Yeah, a day. it's about five percent of their body weight. That's yeah. a fair amount of seafood. Yeah, there's just got to be a lot a lot of burning of energy swimming all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. And then quickly, what preys on them? I mean, great whites, bull sharks, tiger sharks, usually the smaller bottlenose dolphins, the adults 
usually they don't go after the adults. Killer whales sometimes, you know, will go after them. Uh, the bottlenose dolphin, it's been observed, but it's pretty rare. Probably because they're a little bit bigger than some of these other dolphin species that get preyed upon, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, just fascinating. Oh, yeah. I wanted to add a little bit to your nutrition is their hunting techniques, right? So they are a predator and they eat a lot of fish. Uh, and so there's several different strategies to consume this 22 pounds a day or about 5% of their body weight. Uh, and so when they're hunting, they'll sometimes feed individually. Uh, but it has been reported that they'll sometimes do what is known as cooperative feeding, especially when there's a big school of fish. And Chris, one of the more well-known or studied cooperative feedings with uh, dolphins is this strategy called bubble nets where dolphins will work together in cooperation to make like a wall that traps uh, the fish, typically sardines. That's what's been reported a lot. And so the other dolphins can come in there and gobble them up. So so amazing. Like when we covered wolves and we talked a lot about cooperative hunting strategies or wild dogs. I mean, this is right up there with that. Like who coordinates it? Who's going to be the one that blows the bubbles? Who's going to be the one that encircles? Who gets to eat? I mean, all this is very, very fluid and uniform. And they, and, and, and of course, and they have to learn it from one another. So really cool stuff. And then when it comes to hunting individually, there's several different strategies that mm-hmm. uh, bottlenose dolphins use. One of them is called the strand feeding, where they'll basically trap their prey on shore and sometimes even strand themselves briefly to get this stranded prey, uh, which is a little risky, but it yeah. works for them. Uh, another thing that they're known to do is follow boats of fishermen and catch off their discarded uh, prey that they don't want which is definitely a smart way to go about hunting. Just let somebody else do it for Mm -hmm. you, right? And then to make things even more complex or uh, using their intelligence, bottlenose dolphins have been recorded uh, throughout the literature using tools to hunt. And so tool use is really what separates humans uh, from a lot of the other primates, except for maybe like chimpanzees. And so the fact that it's been documented in okay. Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins, the use of tools. Explain this, please. <laughs> Where's their, their hands? Know, <laughs> okay. They don't need hands. They, they have, uh, I did some really deep dives, and I'll just give you the cliff notes, Chris, and maybe I'll send you some of the, the papers. There's these Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins that are really well studied in Shark Bay, Western Australia. So your neck of the woods more closer to closer uh, than you yes thank you very much (laughs) and it's been reported uh, since the i think the 1980s and even currently there's papers as uh, recently 2020 2021 documenting of these indo-pacific bottlenose dolphins doing what's known as sponging and shelling or conking and what sponging is is this is where dolphins place or carry a sponge over their nose or their rostrum that researchers think protects them while they're foraging um, for their prey or camouflages them. (laughs) And even more amazing, a 2019 study documented a vertical transmission of the sponge use, sponge use or tool from mothers to their offspring. 
Oh, it's so fascinating. So that's so sponging. Smart. Oh, it keeps going. So a little bit lesser known and lesser studied, but starting to be explored by some recent studies is the shelling or conking. And it's not observed as often, but once again, it's in these Indo-Pacific bottles, those dolphins. And they use a conch shell, okay? Like the really mm-hmm. big ones you can like mm-hmm. put your ear up to, to hear the oceans. They use that to basically entrap their prey. And then they lift it up and out of the water and shake it. And the, 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 whatever prey they caught in the shell, whatever fish falls out and they gobble it up. <laughs> the, I, every time I can't make co- this stuff up. I mean, every it's, it's time just, we cover a whale or a dolphin or something is fascinating with them. I, the sponge on the nose cracks me up. That is, I, that is awesome. Well, and, and I'll send you some of the papers. Too. It's oh, yeah, God. it's, it's yeah. really, really well documented. And it's, uh, whereas the shelling, the conking, the shelling or conking depends on which paper you look at. They call it different things. Uh, it's definitely, been documented and been, uh, but it's not at, it's not observed as much. And they definitely, I don't know if they've observed the, um, the vertical cultural transmission of this behavior, but just, I mean, tool, any way you slice the dice, it's tool use, which is humans do it. Chimpanzees do it. And the rest is still up in the air. I mean, the first aquatic, well, no. Okay. Otters, sea otters use tools, but as far as, a whale or dolphin, we have not covered anything like that. Exactly. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. There you go. There's the facts. You know, what do you like learning in the All Creatures podcast? There you go. <laughs> dolphins <laughs> yeah. use sponges to camouflage or protect their noses. I know. How fun is that? So uh, and the other thing that got me, Angie, listening to you talk is also the transmission of learning, right? That's culture. That's. Mm-hmm. That's why we had a two-part Orca episode, because we go into that. What is culture? How do you define culture and whales having culture? But, you know, teaching is Mm -hmm. one evidence of a culture base, you know, outside of of humans. So the intelligence of a a bottlenose dolphin is off the charts. Oh, yeah, Chris. I mean, there's very few species that come close. I mean, there's humans and there's apes. Uh, but I mean, bottlenose dolphins have a very large brain. In fact, they have bigger brains than humans and they have a bigger brain to body weight ratio than great apes, but yet still the brain to body weight smaller, uh, than humans. But so basically they're the second most encephalized or big brained creatures in the world that we have. And of course, there's several documentations of them using this, their big brains. Uh, bottlenose dolphins are one of the few species that can recognize themselves in a mirror. So uh, humans can do it. Uh, apes can do it. I think elephants can do it. But it's definitely on the higher cognition um, a scale. And so, and then of course, anybody that's ever seen dolphins under human care understands that this intelligence is easily translated uh, with them solving problems and, of course, learning behaviors. Dolphins have even been trained by by the military um, to work for them, locating sea mines or detecting en- enemy 
enemy things. That's you're you're the military guy, so. <laughs> well, I think they, they've done enemy s- things. I don't know uh, <laughs> submarines. Or, you know, you know well, yeah, they go under like cameras and stuff, and they train them mm-hmm, to look for mm-hmm. saboteurs. How about that? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, they they actually were in the Gulf War, which one? The the one in the nineties, and then also all the stuff that happened in the the two thousands. Uh, they were using dolphins like to go protect like oil platforms and stuff because they were afraid there was my, I think I, I don't, I didn't dive into this for this podcast, but just reading they they were looking for mines on some of these things. Cause that would have been environmental catastrophe, you know, if, if they blew those things up. And so yeah. it's, I, uh, I, think- I know it's controversial, but they, they are very intelligent. Well, what we do know is they definitely, work well with humans and they can understand almost like sentences from us when they're training and when you're working with them. Uh, and one study sh- uh, reported that they will, um, tap an underwater keyboard, uh, telling the researchers or trainers, which toy they want. Like I want squeaky, I want the ball, I want the, what the fish. Uh, and so, I mean, any of us with young children, there's, it's like similar and, intelligence there right well and i mean we we just it seems like we do have a good relationship with them mostly you know we respect them we we love them you know humans love them but some of this altruistic behavior mentioned earlier you know well yeah chris uh actually it's in your neck of the woods in new zealand um in 2008 there was a report of Dolphins exhibiting this altruistic behavior, helping other animals. This was uh, two pygmy sperm whales that were basically stranded, starting to strand themselves on the beach. And the re- the rescuers, people go out there. On, this is on Mahai Beach in New Zealand. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, with that. Uh, and re- rescuers are trying to get these sperm whales, these two pygmy sperm whales, like how darling are they, uh, out to water. When and they just couldn't do it because it's a really stressful situation when uh, when whales will strand themselves. But this local dolphin, known as Moco, started kind of nosing around the situation, started vocalizing at the whales, and led the whales uh, a couple hundred meters uh, along a sandbar to the open sea. (laughs) And in 2019, um, a female. A uh, dolphin was observed caring for a young melon-headed whale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So basically, adopting a you know a different species, a non-conspecific uh, juvenile. So, so empathy. I mean, well, yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's, and, and yeah. these altruistic behaviors—they're not getting anything yeah. out of it. It's not like they're getting food or shelter or safety yeah. or anything. They're doing it because it's like. I guess they know it's the right thing to do or because they have empathy, like you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You like, you just, what's going and on then, in their heads? Yeah. And Chris, I won't give it all away, but in my interview with Pedro about the Lahil bottlenose dolphin, there's this well-documented behavior of basically cooperative fishing or I don't even know if it's cooperative. It might be considered altruistic because the Lahil bottlenose dolphins will help the fishermen uh, catch fish. They'll like, I don't know if they like push the fish towards their fish nets and then they'll actually like signal. I think the signal is that they come out of the water and porpoise or something. And then that signals to the fishermen to like grab up the net and pull up the fish. (laughs) 
I'm not even kidding. It's documented. There's YouTube videos on it. We'll leave right. it on our show notes. Pedro goes into really awesome detail about right. this behavior. It's very well documented. It's in the literature. Uh, and it's they're cooperating with these local fishermen. They're driving, they're herding fish into their nets. And then, of course, uh, maybe it isn't altruistic. Maybe it's, it's cooperative because I think sometimes – when fish escape the nets, that, that's uh, why that's, they nab them. Yeah, they'll get a little bit of that. But I mean, they're but still, queuing, that's a level they're of queuing the fishermen yeah. to yeah. like, this is when you want to do it. That's a level of intelligence that, you know, we, it's just, you get these higher order mammals and it's just insane. And then, <laughs> and then nuts. my last little, the last, I mean, I found so many, I had to pick and choose. There's so many amazing. <laughs> I know. It's like I want to get to behavior. <laughs> I know, but this uh, this this one is so cool. It's about like, well, there this there was this one dolphin. Her name was Billy, and uh, she ended up under human care. I think she, maybe she had an injury or something, so she was like in a marine park. Uh, and I don't know uh, if she. I think she observed or maybe she participated. I'm not sure. It wasn't clear in the paper. Long story short, she learned that uh, tail walking behavior, you know, where they go across the water on their tail, their whole bodies vertical up and down. And they, and then, so it's called a, a tail walking behavior, which is, they don't do this in the wild. It's just something that's been, um, it's just something that they'll do on show um, when they're tr- being trained by humans. Well, Billy learned this behavior. She was released into the wild eight or nine years later. They saw uh, they, these. This was a group of bottlenose dolphins that were like studied pretty well, and they saw Billy doing this uh, tail walking behavior out in the wild. And then they saw another one of the dolphins named Wave doing this behavior as well. Something and so him. Billy had learned it in, under human care, was released, taught it to Wave. Well, and then Billy passed away, I think, because she was a little bit of an older dolphin. And years go by, and it was something like twenty years after uh billy's death for whatever reason wave started wave the dolphin started doing this uh tail walking behavior again and teaching others how to do it (laughs) and keep in mind this tail walking behavior it does not it's not a natural behavior for them in the wild it doesn't do anything for them it's just basically it was called a, a an arbitrary cultural fad is what the paper was labeled. Tail walking in bottlenose dolphins communities, the rise and fall of an arbitrary cultural fad. Like that's the kind of papers that I'm finding. And that's why I'm so in love with these guys. And I I have lots of reading to do because like I said, I'm only touching on some of the highlights. But yeah, I mean, the papers of those Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins and the shelling and the conking and the, uh, it's just incredible. Okay, so you know when we get these emails and they're like, "Ooh, what should I study?" This is what you need to be studying. Like, this is the fun stuff. You, we're discovering so things about these other species, you know, and it really makes us rethink the planet and all these animals. Mm-hmm. You know, all the species mm-hmm. we've covered. It's just when you when you start talking about culture and shell use and sponges on noses and teaching behavior well, to yeah, each other. And, well, and it's also been reported that bottlenose dolphins will help aid and help recuperate injured dolphins. So, I mean, think of us humans and think of our loved ones that have been uh, plagued with either sickness or disease. And 
it's very altruistic. We will help them as much as we possibly can, right? And so to see this in in wild animals and in dolphins, and we know they're smart, but to see that they they want to help their pod or their family member the same way we would want to help our family member. Um, in fact, they'll bring they'll bring an injured dolphin to the surface to help breathe if it mm-hmm. needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes, especially with m- mothers and calves, I mean, it's just it's just incredible. I mean, they're just such beautiful, beautiful creatures. And, and when you're talking into like things that that come to my mind, one time I went deep sea fishing off Mexico, you know, out of San Diego with my best friend Matt from high school, and I remember we were in a pod of dolphins, about a hundred. It was a huge pod. I don't know. There could have been a thousand for all I know. And I could hear them clicking the communication, like because they like to they like to swim next to the bows of boats, mm-hmm. you know. And that was just a fascinating day. And you know, communication with with these guys. I know we talked a little bit of echolocation. You know, they use that to find prey. It, it's just the clicks, the whistles, all the you know. How does it differ? I guess, or what's unique about it? So yeah, Chris, we've been talking a lot about their intelligence and these awesome behaviors they display. And yeah, I haven't even touched on communication. Uh, and as you mentioned, there's two main forms. There's the echolocation, which bottlenose dolphins use to help navigate their surroundings um, and then find prey and the presence of predators. Sometimes they even use it to stun prey. So there's the echolocation, but then they have their noises and dolphins have some of the most complex, beautiful, uh, elaborate uh, acoustic vocalization abilities that there are in the animal kingdom. Uh, They can do whistles, which I'll touch on here in a moment, clicks, moans, barks, groans, yelps, squeaks. The summary of the research suggests that dolphins possess their own what's signature whistle. Okay. So it's called a signature whistle. It's developed after they're born, uh, and it's they keep it for their whole life. And their family members and other groups in their pod recognize one another by their whistles. And these individual, these signature whistles help them stay together, um, help them maintain uh, group cohesion keeps mom and baby close to each other when need be. It tells uh, other dolphins who they are. Um, It helps keep social relationships. And then, Chris, to take it to the next level, studies are suggesting that the repertoire of the whistles has like a geographical tag or variation depending on where they live, right? And so I... I, we talk about the word language, uh, and I don't know if this is a language per se, but it's definitely a dialect, perhaps. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, of depending on where they live, so the whistling is just is really really cool. And so I, whenever I'm talking about just like my kids and stuff, I'm like, yeah, it's like their name, you know. They just I have know. a instead of be calling like Xander, Zach, or Maddox, they're, uh, you know, they're. Click, 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 or, yeah, click, 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 you know, whatever it is. Get over here. Get over here. So I did look it up real quick. Episode 97, Orcas Part 2, where we talk a lot about culture and behavior. Dialect is a mark of culture. It's Mm -hmm. one of the things they look at that says, yeah, this animal has culture, you know, because they do have different dialects. 
and uh, depending on the regions of the world. So it's just fascinating stuff, Angie. So fascinating. Yeah. And, and I mean, and research is still coming, coming out. And I think as we study more and understand more, because once again, too, this is a whole different type of language or uh, dialect or how, whatever you want to call it than we're used to studying, right? We're used mm-hmm. to words and sentences and, but I think as we learn more about them, we're going to, we're going to be even, uh, our minds are going to be blown even more as the years go on. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why we need to protect these guys, right? No, for sure. For sure. Now, I don't know when you talk about behavior, family structure, going into reproduction, I mean, it is it, what are those large pods, you know, what are they, what's the makeup of them? And well, Chris, bottlenose dolphins are very social, gregarious animals. Like you said, you've seen pods of hundreds. And so they can live in groups that can be a few individuals to over a hundred. Like you said, you've mm. been lucky enough to, uh, to see in your lifetime. Right, right. And, um, the, they typically live in like these fission fusion societies. So there's, there's subgroups that might leave like a, um, a mother and a calf, uh, and then they'll, they'll rejoin. And so their social groups are gonna change depending on where they live, um, and what time of year it is. And technically, uh, bottlenose dolphins, they don't have a per se breeding season, uh, and, but when they're act, re- reproductively active, that'll vary depending on where they live. And so calves can be born any time of year, but a lot of times um, they'll be born in the warmer months. So they're in warmer water, which that makes sense. And some of the general breeding behavior about bottlenose dolphins is they are polygamous. Uh, but what's so fascinating, this is another rabbit hole I went down, so I'll give you the brief cliff notes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that um, for breeding behaviors, males will court or breed a female either individually, which that's what we expect to see, right? One uh, male breeds a female and then maybe he goes and breeds another female or they form alliances. And by alliances, what I mean is that males will basically form these bonds together to search out and look for a female that's in estrus, that's cycling. And these males work together to find the female in estrus, separate her from her home range or her pod, and then um, have a chance to breed with her. And they will also work together to prevent her from breeding with other males. And it's been documented that they'll keep the female out of her home range um, for several days to weeks, depending on when she comes into estrus and is accepting of their advances. And so this behavior, this alliance behavior of males working together to breed a female has been documented a lot once again in Shark Bay, Western Australia. So that's where the, uh, the conking and the shelling that I talked about earlier, uh, had been documented And this, this, these, this male alliance is super complex and it's one of the, the most interesting alliances outside of like what us humans would do. So really when we talk, once again, when we talk about social, emotional intelligence, things like that. And so there's been studies for the past 10, 20 years about why they're doing this alliance, how they're doing it. And the most current research suggests that these male bottlenose dolphins uh, 
out of Western Australia will form different alliances based on their needs. So two to three males will form an alliance to try to basically herd an individual female and then breed her. I mean, my, my mind's going to, I don't know why the plains of Africa. And I think of the, the lion male lion alliances that are now common cheetah alliances that are now common, you know, where they're grouping up to, you know, take over prides or, or to be able to breed females. And I guess it's yeah. good for genetic diversity, looking at it from a scientific perspective too. Yeah. But it- Oh, absolutely, Chris. But just even think of the the strategies. The uh, one researcher described it as um, mental calculus that they have to work out of these battle plans to to you know defend uh, from other males, but then also to like isolate the female. And yeah, it's just it's it's just really really incredible. So that that was the rabbit hole that I went down that I want to I want to learn more about and makes me want to go to Shark Bay, Western Australia. No kidding. And, and learn more about this and see some of these just really, really complex and impressive behaviors. But when the female does become pregnant, um, the bottlenose dolphin's gestation period is about 12 months and she'll produce one calf. And the, her pod is very protective. Um, they're going to help the mother during the birthing process. So we got a little bit of midwives or mid, midwife bottlenose dolphins. And then they protect the young from predators. They make sure that the young can surface uh, and get the the oxygen that it needs right away. And so a female bottlenose dolphin is going to spend a lot of time parenting. The male doesn't, the male's not really in the picture at all. Uh, But the females just do a whole bunch uh, besides lactating for that long, but also basically doing this vertical transmission of some of these cultural behaviors, whether it's sponging or bubble netting (laughs) or uh, uh, strand uh, feed stranding where they strand the feed. Uh, So she puts a lot of energy into that. And uh, the female's lucky though, because there is, there has been several reports of alloparenting Mm -hmm. in bottlenose dolphins. And that's where other females within the group help care for each other's offspring. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, they'll look mm-hmm. after them. It's almost like if you think of a built-in babysitter. And this helps the young females that aren't uh, reproductively active, like learn how to take care of kids or maybe learn that they don't want to have kids. <laughs> right. I know, I know, I know, I know. But there's also reports too, which I love this, uh, that female dolphins as mothers have different mothering styles. So some of them are super laid back, letting their calves do whatever, explore. And then other of them are like helicopter parents, like very protective, not letting the calf do anything. So once again, when we see those behaviors that are very common in parents, uh, us humans, right? Right, uh, right, right, right. I don't know. I, what kind of parent are you, Chris? I, you're definitely not a helicopter. I, I think no. you're like... You're like a nurturing and you're non-interference. I, 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 I subscribe to giving freedom, but make sure they're safe and happy and healthy. Yeah. You know, making their yeah. own decisions. Non-interference. I just subscribe to it. I, I just don't want to control them. You right. Know, I want them to yeah. I don't know what animal, and, cause yeah. we always say like bear mom or tiger mom or tiger dad. Well, we're um, in Australia. So we're talking about the, uh, the quokka mom. I can't see memes about <laughs> Yeah. A predator, throw the baby oh, at her. Throw the baby. Yeah. No. 
Yeah, I, maybe. Yeah, maybe we're maybe we're more like elephant parenting, where you yeah. just yeah, you kind of you let guide. I let uh, yeah. yeah, you guide, you gently guide, and yeah. um, hope for the best. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think elephants do that, but anyways, a yeah. different pod for a different day. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But then keep in mind too, for generation interval, when we talk about the Lahiel bottlenose dolphin that is endangered, female bottlenose dolphins really only reproduce every three to six years mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and they don't reach their sexual maturity until they're between five and ten years of age right so i mean they're it's not like they're just uh having you know, babies babies all the it. time mm-hmm. yeah yeah well overall i mean conservation at least concern with bottlenose dolphins but the laheels is endangered yes so, you know with with the subpopulations there Obviously, the oceans are in trouble. It, it, it's it's this is the month, so you know we've got some more exciting species coming your way in the next few weeks. Organization, you know, that's out there. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously we've covered quite a bit. Like we just said, the American Cetacean, Cetacean Society, we're sending them money this month. Who else is out there? Well, of course, I want to give a huge shout out to uh, Pedro Fouet, the uh, Whitley Award winner. Uh, his organization is causa.org, and it can be found at www.kaosa.org.br. And Pedro is working specifically, I mean, we're talking in the boat, taking data day in, day out on, on protecting and conserving the Lahil bottlenose dolphins, which are endangered. Uh, and they live in this very kind of niche area of South, uh, Southeastern Brazil. And he has been doing it for 20 years and his organization looking to help educate um, local fishermen and work with them on trying and trying to reduce um, basically fishermen dolphin conflict in certain areas or the number of dolphins that are caught in bycatch and killed annually. And then just doing a lot of actual research, like of the numbers of the individual dolphins. Uh, I mean, he knows all of them. He knows this one's the mom and this one's the, the calf. And and seeing how they're being impacted on a daily basis and how their populations are either decreasing or growing, and then basically getting local buy-in from grassroots, like the local fishermen, all the way up um, to the the state in Brazil and the country as a whole, and trying to get people excited about why they should want to save the Lahil bottlenose dolphin. And all I all I can say is, I mean, if this podcast didn't do it for you, I don't, I don't know yeah, what I know, would, right? I know, like, I know they're, so they're... Uh, we'll put Pedro's um, yeah. organization, his nonprofit, up on uh, Causa, up on our show notes. And I'd also like to give a big shout out to the Bottlenose Dolphin Research Institute. It's also known as the BDRI, and their website is www.thebdri.com, and we'll put that on our show notes and. This is just an amazing group. Uh, They have a fantastic Facebook platform and social media, and their website's just impeccable if you want to learn more about what scientists, marine scientists in particular, are doing to help understand and save dolphins, especially the bottlenose dolphins. They have a ton of research going on, uh, tons of projects. Um, they have research vessels, they do consulting, they have a laboratory, lots of publications. So they're scientifically based 
the Bottlenose Dolphin Research Institute, I mean, education, conservation, uh, all of it. Um, research, of course, which you and I as researchers, we, we love to support uh, scientifically backed studies. So we'll put their website on our show notes and you can definitely like them on Facebook, follow, uh, follow them for, uh, all the updates of what they're doing, the, uh, the research projects and how they're working to keep bottlenose dolphins and several other species that are in the ocean and the oceans themselves, uh, safe. Well, and I, I looked it up. Sharks Bay is about eight, seven and a half, eight hours North of Perth. So for all of our Aussie listeners, you know, if you're looking for somewhere to go, you know, to go see, go see the Quakas in, uh, off Perth. And then you can, it's, or a two hour flight is what came up on the maps. I was kind of seeing where it was. I'm like, Hmm, I really got to get, cause I I eventually will get over to Perth and then we'll see if Pip and I want to take a drive up, up, uh, that part of Australia. I just, I cannot wait to get over there once all this COVID stuff, uh, blows over the next decade or whatever. But Angie, it's good way to kick off the month. Bottlenose dolphins. I mean, again, this could have been a three-parter episode if we really wanted to to spread it out because <laughs> there's so much physiology. Well, so much we'll behavior. have to revisit, like you said, maybe do the spinner yeah. dolphin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the, the research is just incredible and it's inspiring. I just want to learn more about them. And uh, yeah, we have the Maui dolphin off New Zealand that's that's critically endangered. So um, that they're fighting hard to to save here. So yeah, for sure, there's more of these species, but. Next week, we have a big fish that we're going to cover. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Very exciting. I know it's almost hard to switch gears of like doing the marine mammal and now the fish, but it'll be uh, really fun. Yeah. Uh, definitely some unique physiology going on. Oh, uh, yeah, and- yeah, 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 yeah. This is one that we almost covered last year, but uh, we saved it for this July. So, so stay tuned for that. And, and thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.